Thank you, Jackson. Thank you, Matt. Back in Jesus' Storybook Bible. Last week, we uh, looked at the story of Jesus speaking uh, tenderly to his disciples, saying, look, uh, you know, I know that um, life can be scary. I know that there's a lot of uncertainty around. I know that there's a lot of things that you can be worried about. Do not worry. Do not fret. You, you don't have to live your like that, life like that. I can wean you off of that if you will let me. And what we see is Jesus being just so tender and so gentle and so patient with people. And that's the Jesus, I think, that many of us want to be, at least, most familiar with. We like this picture of Jesus who is just constantly uh, patient with his people, constantly gentle toward his people, constantly being uh, uh, long-suffering with his people. You know, this is the Jesus who, who in the story Bibles, like not the Jesus storybook Bible so much, but the story Bibles that I grew up with anyway, you get pictures of Jesus, you know, scooping up little children in his arms and snuggling them, carrying, I, I had a Bible, my first Bible was a Bible with a picture of Jesus on the front of it, and he was holding a lamb, and he, he kind of looked like he was petting this lamb. You know, this is the Jesus with the wistful look uh, looking out over over the uh, the sunset with the with the breeze kind of wafting his long hair behind him, you know, a perfect Instagram kind of picture. Is that what Jesus is like? Honestly, I don't know about the hair thing, but yes, to some degree, that is what Jesus is like. Jesus is gentle. Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. Jesus is long-suffering with us. He is so incredibly tender. But here's the thing. He's not just that. Jesus is also fearsome. The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. It's a book written by C.S. Lewis. There's been a movie made of it, and it's uh, about a bunch of children who enter a magical uh, world called Narnia, and they encounter a king named Aslan. And I don't know if if uh, you've read this book, or parents, if you've read this book to your children, I strongly, strongly, strongly encourage you to do it. Uh, it's a phenomenal book, and actually the whole series of books, the Narnia Chronicles, is a phenomenal series of books. You can start reading them to your kids when they're itty-bitty-bitty, and you can keep reading it to them uh, as they get older. Anyhow, uh, there's a place in that story where the children are being told about this character Aslan. And in, in, in the book, C.S. Lewis says, he says that when they heard his name, the children had this mixture of loveliness and mystery, and a shiver kind of came over them. And so Susan, one of the children, she's speaking to Mr. Beaver, and she says, well, well who is this Aslan character? And Mr. Beaver says, he's the king the great lion who is the creator of Narnia and its rightful ruler. And Susan responds this way. She says, a lion? I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I should think I'd be rather nervous meeting a lion. And Mr. Beaver says in response, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he ain't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And I love how Lewis puts it in that passage. He says that, that the King Aslan, who is a representative of Jesus in this, he represents Jesus in this story, he is good, but he is not safe. You see, the Jesus of the Bible, if you only see him as, as 
uh, gentle and tender, etc. You're only getting uh, half the story about who Jesus is. Jesus is not the domesticated homeboy of celebrity t-shirts. He is not like anyone that you have ever heard of before. He's not like anyone who's ever lived before. See, there is absolutely no category in which you can fit Jesus. Now, if you are exploring Christianity, you're watching this and you're not necessarily a Christian, but you're intrigued by Christianity and you're interested in Christianity and you want to know something more about Christianity, know this, Jesus Christ is in a class by himself. He is the ultimate alien. He is other. He is like no person who has ever lived. He is different from anyone and he makes demands upon his people that no other human being would ever dare to make upon them. He is like no one. He is a singularity. And he confronts us with that singularity in this story today. And so I ask you, if you're not a Christian, if you're exploring Christianity, I ask you to just follow me through this story and hear what Jesus has to tell you about himself. And if you are a Christian and you're watching this, the lesson we need to learn is that Jesus is not just our buddy. He's not just our friend. He's our king because he's our God. So, we're going to have a look at this story together for a few minutes. There are no major points in this story. What we're going to do is we're going to walk through the story and we're going to make observations along the way. It is a short story, but it is full of important and fascinating details. Beginning in verse 35, it says, That day when, Jesus, when evening came, he said to his disciples, let's go over to the other side. So where they are is on the northwest corner or shore of the Sea of Galilee. They're in Jewish territory. And Jesus, when he says, let's go to the other side, he's saying, let's cross this Sea of Galilee and let's go to the southeast shore, which is Gentile territory. Now, the Sea of Galilee is not huge. Uh, you, could, you could actually make the trip around the Sea of Galilee quite simply and quite easily, but Jesus says, let's go across the other side and let's take a boat. And the Sea of Galilee, what's interesting about it is that it is actually uh, the lowest freshwater lake in the world. It is, it is at, at the lowest number of feet above sea level. It's actually not above sea level. It's below sea level. It's the lowest lake in the world. And it is surrounded all the way around by, um, by these mountain ranges. And so it's, it's like at the very, very bottom of a bowl. And Jesus says, let's go across to the other side. Okay, fine. So they get in a boat and off they go. And in verse 36, we continue to read and we, we, we hear this. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There was also other boats with him. A furious squall came up and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. So this was a small boat. It's probably about four feet deep. It's probably not much more than four or five feet wide and about 25 feet long. So it's not a big boat at all. And uh, the reason that uh, it, it was, a storm came up was because that was actually pretty common on the Sea of Galilee. Because it's at the bottom, right, of a bowl, 
and there's these mountain ranges that surround it. What is very common in that area is that hot air from the Sea of Galilee meets the cold air coming down from the mountains, and it makes these squalls. It makes things really, really windy. And, and in an instant, storms can, can, uh, can form and, and gust up uh, uh, on the Sea of Galilee. And the vast majority of times that happens is during the day because the sun shines, it heats up the water, the air rises, the cold air starts to come down, and they, they meet and you get a storm front, okay? But what we see is that this happens at night, and this storm is huge. There's storms that happen on the Sea of Galilee, but then there's this storm, and the reason we know that this one is special is because the disciples who were fishermen who worked the Sea of Galilee all their lives as fishermen, are absolutely freaked out. They're terrified. And we read that Jesus, while they're freaking out during this storm, has taken a pillow, has taken a cushion, and he set it down, and he's laid down to go to sleep. And all these details are actually meant to, to trigger our suspicion that, hmm, they're traveling at night, going across the sea, but a huge storm has come up, which is a little bit uncommon at uh, that these storms would happen at night, and Jesus is uh, sleeping with a pillow. The idea is, is to, to make us think that perhaps this whole experience was planned, that Jesus put them in this situation where their lives are in danger. And we know their lives are in danger because they say in verse 38, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? They think they're going to die. And so when they ask this question, it's one of those accusatory questions, right? Um, you know how you can do that? You can, you can say, uh, don't you love me? when you're actually not asking to find out whether that person loves you, what you're actually saying is that they don't love you, right? You're, you're accusing them of something in the form of a question. And that's what they do to Jesus. They don't actually ask him to do anything. They just say, don't you care if we're going to drown? And what they're doing is, is they're rebuking Jesus for his perceived indifference. Here's the first observation. Can you not sympathize with the disciples in this moment? When I read through the Gospels, I am often watching the disciples put their foot in their mouth, say something stupid, do something stupid, and I just want to shake my head and say, you foolish, stupid, silly, dumb disciples. Why did you do that? Why did you say that? Especially Peter. The guy's constantly like making the wrong move. But I got to be honest... This time, I feel like I get it. I feel actually as though I've been there. Have you been there? Have you been in a situation where you, where you feel like you're going to die? Not, maybe not literally, although possibly, but maybe financially, maybe emotionally. You feel psychologically so overwhelmed. You feel like you're, you're going to die. I know that sounds hyperbolic, but this is kind of the sense of existential dread that overcomes you, and you think to yourself, where are you, Jesus? You seem so indifferent. You seem like you're asleep at the wheel, so to speak. It's almost like simply being in the situation at all 
whether it's trouble with your friends, whether it's trouble with your job, whether it's trouble with your school, whatever trouble it may be, it's big, it's overwhelming, and just by virtue of being in this situation, you kind of think to yourself, well, Jesus, do you even care about me at all? Because if you did, I can't see why you would let, me, let this thing happen to me in the first place. That's the first observation. The second observation is to remind you that they actually ended up in this situation because Jesus put them there. It's not a coincidence. It's not dumb luck. It's not just kind of random. No, Jesus has kind of has orchestrated this circumstance. It's premeditated. It's calculated by him. Does that make Jesus cruel? No, it doesn't. There's a point to it. And the whole point is this. Jesus wants to show them something about himself. Look what happens next. It says, He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. He gets up, and the picture I have is Jesus kind of sort of groggy. They shake him awake and he's like, hmm, huh, what's going on here? Almost like he was in a really deep sleep. You had to be in a deep sleep if you can sleep in the middle of a storm. So I'm assuming that that's correct. And he kind of gets up and he looks up and he, he sees the waves crashing. He feels the wind whipping through his long flowing locks, of course. And he, he kind of looks around and he says, quiet! Would you just shut up? Stop! It was almost like he was putting a kid in a timeout. But this is Jesus speaking to the very forces of nature. And it says that instantly the wind and the waves calmed down. Now, maybe it would be a coincidence if the wind stopped. You're like, whoa, that was weird. Jesus said stop and the wind just stopped. But the waves, everybody knows that when a storm happens, it's the waves that keep going long after the storm has passed through. That's when the surfers like to come out, right? But the waves stop too. It's like when you go up to the cottage or go camping or something in the, in the middle of summer and as dusk sets, the, the water becomes like glass and the air is dead still. Now what we need to understand is, is that in Scripture, the sea, the waters, always represent chaos. They represent the uncontrolled and the uncontrollable. They represent disorder. They represent anarchy. They are the place of destruction. And only, only God controls the sea. Only God himself has power over these forces of destructive uh, natural uh, power because it's unknown. You don't know what lurks in the sea, right? And there's power in the sea. There's sea monsters in the sea. This past summer, I went to Tobermory with my family, and, and what's cool about swimming uh, in, in Georgian Bay or in Lake Huron is the water is, like, super clear, so you can see really far down. And, I, you know, you go swimming out, and you're, you, you know, it's really nice. It's beautiful. You see the bottom, and then all of a sudden, there's a cliff, and because it's so deep, the, the light doesn't reach there. It just becomes blackness, and you get wigged out. You just get wigged out. There may be absolutely nothing there, but you don't know that. 
and you may not believe in sea monsters, actually, but in that moment, all of a sudden, they become very real to you. The sea represents this unknown, this scary, this terrifying place. And Jesus exercises absolute control over it. And again, like in every other place, he doesn't do some kind of magic trick. He's not like Storm from X-Men who can control the weather. You know, she rises up and she goes, like that. Maybe you don't know what I'm talking about because you don't know anything about X-Men. That's for your X-Men fans. The point is, is that Jesus doesn't go, abracadabra, alakazam, he just says, stop it. Be quiet. Because he's showing that he has divine power. Unrivaled power. Otherworldly power. And that, friends, is what explains what comes next. Verse 40. He said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? You would think he would say, Hey guys, yeah, that was scary. I know. I got it taken care of. You're safe now. Don't worry about it. Not at all. He doesn't do that. He rebukes them. He kind of sounds offended. You still have no faith? He says, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? Why would he react to that? I think that word still is really, really important to understand why. These guys have been with Jesus all this time now. They've seen him work miracles. They've listened to him teach authoritatively. They've basically given their lives over to his care. And he has never, ever let them down. He has taken complete care of them. And they have the audacity to say, don't you care if we drown? Third observation. Last week, when we were looking at how Jesus deals with our worry, he emphasized over and over and over again, don't forget, God is your Father. You know, you kids, you don't realize how much your parents think about you, how much you're on their mind, how much they're, they're anxious, in a good way, for your, what is best for you. They're always taking knowledge of you and thinking about you and, and, and concerned with, with, with what's best for you. That's what we saw last time. But what we see this week is, is that, that there's, there's more to it than that because you see a parent, a parent cares very, very deeply for their child. Any half-decent parent does and they make tons of sacrifices for their children. When your children are really small, you read really boring books to them over and over and over again because they love it. And you, you play the, 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 the silliest games with them over and over and over again because they absolutely love it because you know that for their development it's really, really important. And then when they get older, you drive all over creation and, and spend all kinds of money to put them in sports or put them in lessons. or like Think of how many parents have to sit there agonizing over their child refusing to do piano lessons and having to, to stand tough. I once had a parent tell me the difference between a successful music student and an unsuccessful music student is a persistent parent. I was not a persistent parent because I was just not willing to put in the sacrifice required to fight with my kids every time they sat down in front of a piano. 
and they drive them all over to their friend's house because they make friends with people who live a half an hour or 45 minutes away and they want to go over to their friends and hang out. And so you're on the road at 11.30 at night on a Friday night and you don't want to be on the road at 11.30 at night and you're driving to the middle of nowhere to pick them up from their friend's house. And you do all these things. You go out of your way to make them happy, to make them healthy, to set them up for success in life. And then once your kid comes to you and, and asks you for something and you say, no, I don't think this is good for you. And they flip out and they say, I knew you didn't care about me. And you're like, excuse me? Do you have any idea the sacrifices that I make for you? All the things that I, and you want to start listing them, right? Go through the list with them and show them. See, Jesus is rebuking his disciples because they're not focusing on him in the midst of their storm. If they did, they wouldn't need to be afraid. One of the lessons of this story really is, is that if God is in the boat with you, you have nothing to fear. Or do you? There's another observation Fourth observation, verse 41 says this. They were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Before, the disciples were scared. They thought they were going to die. In the original language, they are now, they are megaphobos. They are mega scared. A great fear has come upon them. Before they were afraid, now they're absolutely terrified. Why? I mean, Jesus' whole point is, why are you afraid? He's saying, with me, you have nothing to fear. You don't have anything to worry about. And yet, after the storm is gone, after the threat has passed, they're more terrified than they were before. What's up with that? Because they know. They know that they are in the presence of more than a man, more than the greatest man who ever lived. I said at the very beginning, there is no category for this Jesus. You see, these disciples are discovering that, encountering that, being confronted with that in this moment. They are meeting Jesus' holiness. His complete otherness. That's what holiness basically means. And he had holy power. He had alien power. He had otherworldly power. There was only one conclusion that they could come to. This person had absolute power, power that was greater than the storm itself. He must be divine. Now, what do we do with that? Let me apply it this way. First of all, ask yourself, how do you see Jesus is he your buddy or your homeboy? Is he this just sort of non-threatening, domesticated pal? If he is, you need to adjust your understanding of this Jesus. If you are new to Christianity, may I please just encourage you, get this straight right now. To come to Jesus is to come to someone who is good, but he is not safe. Because to come to him is to submit yourself to God in the flesh. He is utterly in charge. He will not allow you to add him to your lifestyle. 
He will not allow you to add him to your philosophy. He will not allow you to add him to your way of doing things. He demands absolute sovereignty because he is God. It's the only response, if you're going to come to him, it's the only response that makes sense. And if you are a believer, if you are a Christian, Understand, yes, Jesus is your friend, but he is your Lord. And I know maybe you're thinking, but, but am I supposed to be afraid of my friend? Well, if you don't think you should be afraid of your friend, you need to have a talk with the Apostle John. John, who wrote the Gospel according to John, was Jesus' BFF. He was the one, the disciple that Jesus loved. He's the one that at the Last Supper it says that he was reclining against the bosom of Jesus. They were, they were very, very close friends. They were dear friends. And John, in the book of Revelation, writes that after Jesus had ascended and he had not seen Jesus for a while, Jesus came back to him. And, and when he saw Jesus, when he saw his best friend after, after a long uh, uh, time apart of separation, what does he do? It says in, in Revelation 1, verse 18, it says, what does it say? When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. See, Jesus is our Lord. I mean, He's our friend, but He's also our Lord. He, we don't just have a peer-to-peer equal relationship with Jesus. He is to be feared. Well, how do you know you fear Him in the, in the right way, in the healthy way? Well, you know you fear Jesus when you don't fear anything else. That's the point of the disciples' experience. Jesus is showing them that if they fear Him, if they rightly fear Him, they do not need to fear anyone else. Do you know who I am? Jesus is asking them. I am with you. You do not need to fear anything. You know, I, uh, years ago, I was part of a ministry to men um, who, went, uh, who were in recovery, alcohol uh, recovery, addictions recovery. These were men uh, in downtown Hamilton. I was part of a ministry with them, and I got to know these guys pretty good. And in all honesty, the vast majority of them, they were rough dudes. They were tough dudes. They were big dudes. They were tatted up, and they were strong, and they were intimidating. And one time, we, uh, a bunch of us went with these guys and, and to a, a Jays game in Toronto. And we had a great time at the Jays game. And then at night, you know, you're walking back to your car, and you're walking through downtown Toronto. And I am surrounded, like little old me, I'm surrounded by all these rough and tough dudes. And I am walking through the streets of Toronto like I am the man. Like we could have been in Jane and Finch or whatever the toughest area of the city would have been and I would have been with these guys and strutting around just like, I got nothing to worry about here because I was with these guys. And Jesus is telling us here that when, when He is with you, you fear Him, you have nothing else to fear. But you also know when you, that you fear Him when you obey Him. Yes, Jesus is our friend, but he's not our equal. Too often we take Jesus' commands as though they're advice. Here's what I want you to do. Here's how I want you to live. Stay sexually pure. Forgive those who, are, who persecute you. Give away your money. Don't hold grudges. Only be in romantic relationships with 
followers of Jesus Christ. And, and we respond to all these rules or commands and we say, hmm, I'll take it under advisement. You can't do that with God in the flesh. He's not an advisor. He's a Lord. And he has earned that. He hasn't just earned that by virtue of his nature. He earned it by virtue of his mission. Because you see, this storm was merely a prelude to a much, much greater storm. The storm of God's judgment on our sin. And in that storm, Jesus would enter into that storm that was caused because of our unbelief and he would drown under God's wrath and justice for our sin and our rebellion for our salvation. In other words, this incredible power that is greater than the power of the natures of nature itself is a harnessed power, a power that has been harnessed by God himself to bless us, to redeem us, to rescue us, to make us his. And so when you fear him, You don't have to fear anything else. And in fact, you don't even have to fear him, ultimately. Because he has taken all that power and he has harnessed it and he has focused it for your salvation. You can trust him. You know, the disciples weren't finished yet. There they were on that boat looking at Jesus, trying to figure out who this was and the dominoes were starting to fall or the pieces were starting to fall into place and they were freaking out because they still lived on the other side of the cross. But you and I, we're on the, the, the other side. We're on the other side of the, the empty grave and we know that this Jesus who harnessed the waves and the wind, this Jesus gave up all that power and submitted to God's judgment for us so that we can know him as the fearsome one who is tender with his people. Though demanding, no doubt. All right, let's pray. Almighty God and Heavenly Father, Jesus our Lord and Master and our Savior, thank you for who you are. Thank you for being the one who has redeemed us and who has undergone the storm of God's justice in order to make us your children so that when we face any storm in life, we need not be afraid. Please root in us a healthy fear of our Lord remembering that this is not a, a buddy-buddy relationship. Rather, this is a king who has befriended us and a shepherd who has died for us. And may we give ourselves entirely to him. I pray especially for those who may not know this Jesus this way. They may have heard of him as a wise teacher, as a guru, as a, as a wandering wise man. May they, may they encounter him as the divine son of God himself and come to saving faith. Whether they've been going to church forever or never set foot in a church before but are just watching church over live stream. Father, meet them where they're at, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.